Uh, Before I begin this morning, um, I just wanted to uh, acknowledge my thankfulness for the works of R. Kent Hughes, John MacArthur, and J.I. Packer, uh, um, some men that I deeply um, appreciate and mold over their works as I prepared uh, this sermon. Uh, As you know, these past few weeks we've been looking at the different doctrines uh, of the church, uh, different aspects of the church, and the elders thought it would be good to discuss a biblical model for giving. Um, Throughout the scriptures we find many exhortations, commands, and prescriptions for life. Life as individuals, life in our families, and even life in our church. 2 Peter 1 tells us that the knowledge of God comprises everything we need for life and godliness. When we seek guidance in all the areas of our lives, we look not to the world, we look to the scriptures. And at the root of all these instructions, there is always, either directly or indirectly, an emphasis on the orientation of the heart. As we live our lives in everything we think, say, and do, the condition of our heart is foundational. Giving is one of these areas that we find much about throughout the scriptures. And our ability to give rightly to God has much to do with the condition of our hearts. In my study over the last several weeks, I found a quote. When I read it, I was deeply convicted. I want to share it with you. There is no way to grow to spiritual maturity without committing your finances to the Lord. Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without our money. Luke 16.13 says, You cannot serve God and money. I also found a story about a rich Scottish man who during an offertory time of a worship service accidentally put a piece of gold in the offering plate as it went by instead of a penny. As soon as he had realized what he had done, he cringed and he quietly whispered to the usher, for it back. (laughs) The usher simply answered, in once, in forever. The man answered, oh well, at least I'll get credit for it in heaven. To which the usher answered, no, you will only get credit for a penny. God's main concern in whatever we are doing is with the condition of our hearts. Uh, Before we begin to look at our text this morning, I wanted to look at two different men who loved money. Each of these men encounter Christ, but only one experiences a radical change of heart. Uh, If you would uh, keep your thumb there in 2 Corinthians, but turn over to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18, and I'll begin reading at verse 18. Luke 18, 18. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is impossible what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The rich young ruler was seeking a way to earn eternal life, to do it for himself. For all of the things the rich, man, the rich young man had done, he had not given his heart to the Lord. His heart belonged to his riches. And unless he did as Christ instructed him, giving away all of his riches to the poor which would have been evidence of giving his heart to Christ, he would not inherit the thing he wanted the most. We must be willing to give up everything for Christ. Flip just one page over uh, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Let me say that again. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And then they, and, then, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have defraud and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I don't know if you caught the difference there. The rich young man was seeking eternal life. Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. 
And when Jesus called, he hurried, he came down, and he received him joyfully. But who was Zacchaeus? He was a chief tax collector in Jericho. A man chiefly hated and despised by all of those in Jericho. He was a chief tax collector, and as the crowd said, he was a chief sinner. A man whose heart was, like the rich young ruler, bent towards riches. But Christ had begun to do a work in Zacchaeus' heart before he had even passed by on the road that day. By the grace of God, Jesus redeemed Zacchaeus. And when he experienced that redemption, his love for riches died. Because a new love had taken its place. One of the richest men in Jericho gave up all that he had because of the love he now had for Christ and the priceless gift that he had received. So what is the point of all of this? What biblical truth is the Lord revealing to us here today in 2 Corinthians? It is simple. The grace of salvation radically changes our perception and use of money as compared to the world. If your perception of money is not like that of Zacchaeus and like that of the Macedonians as we're going to see, if we have not become a giving people, then I think we must question whether or not we belong to Christ. The rich young ruler could not loosen his grip on his riches. But Zacchaeus completely let go of all of his earthly possessions when he was given new life. His love changed. His motivation changed. His goals changed. His whole life was changed. And all of this was clear by what he did. His actions revealed his faith. True salvation radically changes our lives, our priorities, and our mindset. It changes our hearts. Where a heart of stone once resided, we now have a heart of flesh. A heart that could never have chosen humility is now capable of humbly submitting to Christ in all things. A changed heart is the foundation for living our new life in Christ. So a question, what kind of heart do you have? A heart of stone or a heart of flesh? I would like for you to listen as I summarize a description from the Sermon on the Mount. These are the kinds of things that a person who is redeemed does, what kind of life they should intentionally strive to live. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who belong to Christ are poor in spirit. 
this first phrase from Christ in his first sermon to these crowds is absolutely foundational to what he says. A changed heart, an intentionally humble heart, these are required to do everything that will follow in the Sermon on the Mount. You have to have a changed and humble heart. Those who belong to Christ hunger and thirst for righteousness, are merciful, are pure in heart, are peacemakers. They are salt and light. They have control of their anger. They do not hate their brother or sisters in Christ. They do not lust, nor do they commit adultery. They have nothing to do with retaliation. They love their enemies. They give to the needy. They fast in secret. They lay up treasures not here on earth, but in heaven. They are not anxious. They don't judge others. And when they have a need, they ask. They strive to stay on the narrow path. And they bear good fruit. All of these are worthy goals, and they all are utterly dependent on a humble heart. Our hearts are made humble through the gospel and our full surrender and subscription to it. If you remember, Patrick last week reminded us that Christ purchased all of us. And therefore, we must submit everything to Him. We can hold nothing back. We are blood-bought people. But when Christ purchased us, He did not take away our wills. Instead, He took away, as I said before, our dead hearts of stone, and He put in there a heart of flesh. He brought us to life and gave us a heart that could then choose. And at the moment of our regeneration, the first thing we had to do was to choose to die to ourselves and to follow Christ. Just like Zacchaeus, we surrender everything and respond to the call. And this is not a one-time choice. We must continually and intentionally choose to submit or not. We can choose to submit to the abundance of grace that we have been gifted by Christ and His atonement He made on our behalf. We can choose to submit to the steadfast love and mercy of God towards us a people who continually miss the mark each day. We can choose to submit to the calling that He has so graciously given each and every one of us. We can choose to submit and exercise the spiritual gifts that He has given us. We can choose to do these things now, or we can choose not to. It is through our humble acceptance and submission to these truths that we as God's people can, out of the overflow of our hearts, love the Lord, love God's people, and dedicate all that we are towards the enjoyment and the expansion of God's kingdom, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. This is where the Macedonians were. This is the kind of life they were living. We're going to look at them in more detail here in a few moments. 
I think an important question to ask as we begin is why did the Corinthians need to hear what Paul is giving them in this letter? A lot had happened between the time Paul had preached Christ crucified to these people. A church was planted and where the Corinthians now found themselves. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 had originally encouraged them to give in support of the Jerusalem church who was living through a time of great need. And the Corinthians were giving. But they had had a falling out with Paul. They had lost their confidence in him as an apostle. So they stopped the collection for the church. But when Titus had reported to Paul that the Corinthians had repented of this, Paul again here in 2 Corinthians called on them to continue to grow in their faith. If you remember when it was read, it said that the Corinthians had already excelled in growing in their faith, in their speech, in their knowledge, and in all earnestness. But one area they still needed to grow in. Their giving. Paul is encouraging Corinth to join in and support the ministry happening in Jerusalem. One of Paul's biggest ministry goals is to close this spiritual gap between the Jews and the Gentiles in his ministry. To unite them as brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a great need in Jerusalem. But there is also a great need for Corinth to grow in generosity. If both of these needs are met, then it's going to bind their hearts together more tightly. So why do we need to hear this this morning? Why does Providence need to hear this message? Why do we need to understand these words this morning? I would say that we need to examine our hearts in the relation to giving and supporting the ministry happening here. We need to examine whether we are fulfilling our God-given ministry goals. Are we truly doing all the Lord has called us to do as a body? Locally, regionally, globally? Are we paying our staff the salaries they deserve according to what the scriptures require? Do we have financial goals set in place so that we can buy land and, or buy a building one day and have a church home? Are we investing in local missions and outreach like we should be? Do we have future church planting in mind as we continue to grow as a body? How do we plan to work alongside RBNet in fulfilling its mission goals around the world? Can we expand our own involvement in the shoebox ministry? We need to always have our hearts and minds working, examining our priorities to ensure that we're fulfilling our calling as providence. <clears throat> like, like Corinth, Paul, by, the, by and through the Holy Spirit, is calling us to grow more in generous and more intentional in our giving. As individuals, but also as a church. Not just giving financially, This can be applied so many different areas of our lives. Giving our time, giving our resources, and giving our skills to expand the kingdom. We must be willing to give anything that facilitates the continual growth of the local 
and universal church. Paul is encouraging us to do this by this passage of Scripture this morning. He wants us to intentionally submit to Christ. He wants us to press forward in all kinds of ministry. And he wants us to specifically grow in generosity as well. Uh, if you'll flip back over to Second Corinthians chapter eight, and we'll jump back in here. Uh, this text this morning is broken into, into three main sections. Uh, in verses one through seven, Paul is going to give us an example of the generosity of the Macedonians. In eight through ten, he's going to give us the example of Christ. And in eleven through fifteen, he's going to give us some directives on giving. Uh, so let's just jump in here. Uh, verse 1 it says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. This word grace is very important in this section of Scripture. It's used eight times in chapters 8 and 9 in dealing with this idea of giving. It's used five times in just the first nine verses here that we're going to cover this morning. Paul's teaching on giving from beginning to end is actually a sermon on grace, not giving. As we continue through the text, we're going to see that it is only by experiencing God's grace that we are truly free to freely give. Verse 2 says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty says that they were afflicted. The Macedonians lived in a culture totally opposed to any form of devotion to Christ. They endured immense persecution, but remained devoted and faithful. And while we do live in a culture that is becoming more opposed to the things of Christ each day, it is extremely difficult for us to relate living through a time like this. But we should be prepared to. Christ endured immense suffering and He promised that we would as well as His people. If we are truly living for and following Christ, the world will hate us. They will persecute us. And they will work against us. If we are not being persecuted for our faith we may need to ask ourselves how good of a job we're actually doing living out our faith in the world. Verse 2 says that they were poor. They were extremely poor. They were dirt poor. Again, it's really hard for us here this morning to relate to the kind of poverty that the Macedonians were living in. Sometimes we tend to think of ourselves as poor. But I would ask you, how much of your perceived poverty is self-inflicted? As I was thinking about affliction and poverty, I came across some statistics that I'd like to share with you. I truly do hope that they well up in you, thanksgiving to God for where you were born. I hope they well up in you a greater awareness of how much you really are blessed 
and how much ability you really do have to bless others. Here they are. If you can read, you are blessed. One billion people in the world cannot read. If you woke up this morning with your health, then you're blessed. Around one million people will not survive the coming week. Not only do we have our health, but we have also guaranteed health care that keeps us from dying from all sorts of treatable diseases. Many in the world do not have this blessing. If you have never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, then you are blessed. 500 million people around the world are experiencing these things right now. If you can attend any meeting you want to, whether it be religious, political, or social, you are blessed. Three billion people in the world cannot do this today. If you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep tonight, you are blessed. 75% of the world does not have this ability. If you have money in the bank, money in your wallet, and spare change in a bowl at home, you are in the top 8% of the wealthy in the world. You are blessed. We are truly blessed by God beyond measure. Not only physically, but spiritually as well. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Remember how blessed you truly are. Meditate on the wealth of blessings that you have been given. I also want you to notice in these first couple of verses that the Macedonians' affliction and their poverty are not given to us in a negative light. Paul is not asking the Corinthians to have pity on Macedonia. Much like Paul's thorn, they are using these difficult circumstances to cultivate joy and generosity. Paul boasted in his weakness. The Macedonians' hearts in the midst of suffering, overflowed with a wealth of generosity. This is countercultural living. We typically view poor people and afflicted people as people that should have things done for them, not by them. But these people are selflessly serving others. Through their lack, God opened up their hearts to serving others. The great gift of wealth that they had in Christ opened their hearts, and they could no longer cling to what small amount of tangible wealth they had. Instead, they gave it away to those in need. When we think of the word overflowed, I thought of Matthew twelve thirty four. 
Matthew 12.34 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is the same idea happening here. Their affliction and their poverty welled up in them an abundance of joy and faith to such an extent that it overflowed. They could not help but to share their joy and their faith and even their finances with Jerusalem who had a great need. Macedonians did not give a large amount of money. The amount was not the thing Paul is bringing to light here this morning in our text. It was their willingness and their joy that he is bringing to light. Like the widow who placed two copper coins in the treasury, so the Macedonians did also. They were literally experiencing God's love and care for them, and they knew that they could not outgive God's ability to care for them. They knew how blessed they were. Another important thing to see here is how the size of the gift was measured by Paul. Verses 3 and 4 says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. It says they gave according to their means. And this would have been the quantity that Paul was expecting when he asked them to give towards this endeavor. It wasn't a fixed amount, but it was a prayerful amount based on their ability. Paul was not taking up a tithe for Jerusalem. He was not calling for a tithe for Jerusalem. But I do think that the idea of a tithe is helpful here. This idea of according to their means simply meant an amount that believers should plan to give or to use in this way based on what they have. We, like we plan to tithe, we should also plan to give towards other needs as well, just like the Macedonians had. I do want to offer up a few thoughts about tithing um, as well. Like the heart motivation in our text this morning, the tithe was never meant to be ritualistic. It was never supposed to be a legalistic thing that we do as followers of Christ. The giving of the tithe was ever and always meant to be a humbling reminder to the people. As they gave a portion of their wealth back to the Lord, they would acknowledge that all that they had was from the Lord. And this would, by design, grow their faith and dependence on the Lord for everything. The goal was to grow in dependence on the Lord and grow and decrease in dependence on themselves. The more they gave, the more they physically acted out their dependence on the Lord. Not only did they give according to their means, the text says, but it says that they gave beyond their means. They gave beyond the expected amount. It was not a minimum. What they gave was beyond their actual ability to give. And this was their joyful choice. It was not a command. They were not depending on their finances to care for them. They were dependent on Christ to supply their every need. What trust and what faith 
the Macedonians had. It says that they were begging earnestly. Who was doing the begging? Was it Paul begging the Macedonians for money? Was it Jerusalem begging? No. The Macedonians were begging. More than likely, Paul had probably counseled them, being aware of the situation they were in, to not give so much because of their poverty. But they insisted that they be able to do this. They begged Paul for the ability to give towards the church in Jerusalem. Our giving is not graded by riches. It has nothing to do with being rich or whether you have extra cash at the end of the month. Giving is to be done with enthusiasm. We should look at giving as a privilege, not a burden. Not reluctantly handing over, but joyfully offering up what was first given to us. Verses 5-7 through says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. The Macedonians were self-giving. The kind of generous giving described here by Paul is only possible when first rooted in a right response to God's grace and mercy towards us. It says that they gave themselves first to the Lord. In his commentary, Hugh says, When we know that our lives are not our own, neither will we think our possessions are our own. It is easy to surrender a part when we've already given the whole. There is an implicit lesson here. It won't do any good to give our possessions to God unless we have first given ourselves. In fact, giving that is not rooted first in a right response to God's grace actually is harmful. We are tempted to think we are giving something that is ours. We, by our efforts and abilities, have given of our own possessions. This kind of giving is rooted in and feeds religious pride in our lives. Let me assure you of something this morning. God doesn't need my money. And God doesn't need your money. We are not called to give for giving's sake. Our faith is not defined by giving things or giving money. Our faith is defined by first giving ourselves fully, wholly, completely over to Christ, then completing all the work that He has for us to do. It's because when we have given ourselves fully 
to Christ, we can easily offer up any part of our lives to meet whatever need Jesus has placed before us. I have a few questions for you to reflect on this morning. Does your self-inflicted poverty keep you from being able to give more to the advancement of the kingdom of God? Are you too distracted by this world and all its enticements that you are truly hindering the advancement of the kingdom of God? Based on how you are living out your faith, how much of your life would someone say Christ possesses? 10%? 20? 50? 90? Why are you so unwilling to freely surrender to Him all that He purchased? Are you actively and intentionally working to surrender the areas of your life to Christ that you previously have not? What about Christian liberty? What is Christian liberty? I mean, shouldn't I get to keep some parts of my life for myself? I think a lot of faithful men and women have been fed a lie about what Christian liberty is. Many think it's about getting to think, say, or do whatever I want, as long as I don't cross some sort of overtly sinful line. Whatever makes me feel good, as long as I don't cross a line. If I don't feel guilty, if I don't feel ashamed, then it must be okay. I mean, I have liberty, right? Let me read from you for you for a moment here um, from the London Baptist, London Baptist Confession, uh, 1689, uh, the three sections on Christian liberty. The liberty Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel is found in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemnation of wrath, and the severity and curse of the law. It also includes their deliverance from this evil present age, bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, the suffering of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. In addition, it includes their free access to God and their obedience to Him, not from slavish fear, but from a childlike love and willing mind. All of these liberties were also enjoyed in their essence by believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further expanded. They are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish congregation was subjected. They have great, greater confidence of access to the throne of grace, and they have a fuller supply of God's free spirit than believers under the law usually experienced. The second section says, God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and He has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to His word or not contained in it. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is a betrayal of the true liberty of conscience, requiring implicit faith or absolute and blind obedience destroys liberty from conscience and reason as well. And the last section. Those who use Christian liberty as an excuse to practice any sin 
or nurture any sinful desire prevent the main objective of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. And they completely destroy the purpose of Christian liberty. The purpose is that we, having been delivered from the hands of all our enemies, may serve the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him, all the days of our lives. Liberty is not about doing what we want to do. It's about freedom from bondage. Freedom freedom from being dominated by our sin. Any freedom that we have been given must then be redirected to glorifying God. Our freedom is not our own. We were bought for a price. I think another important question to ask is, how do you view yourself as a believer? As a slave freed from bondage to sin? As a member of the kingdom of God? If so, you should ask yourself, what is my position in this kingdom? What are my roles, duties, obligations, and privileges as a member of this kingdom? How should I order my life, my time, my family, my job, and my finances around my membership in the kingdom of God. The verses tell us that the Corinthians excelled in many areas of their walk of faith. But despite all of these good qualities, they still needed to grow in one very important one, giving. So, Paul, after giving them the example of the Macedonian submission to Christ and their generosity towards Jerusalem, moves on to a more ultimate example, the example of Christ Himself. If you look at me at uh, verse 8, it says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. While the example of the Macedonians is encouraging and helpful to the Corinthians, it may not be enough. And so Paul gives us Christ's example. And he's hoping that Christ's example to the Corinthians will bring about the effectual change and encouragement that he's going for. Verse 8 says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. It would have been really easy for Paul to give a command here. But if the Corinthians had only followed a directive of Paul, what would that have proved? Simply that they loved Paul. That they were willing to do whatever Paul asked them. It would not have proved that their love for Christ and for the struggling believers in Jerusalem was genuine. 
Paul makes a pretty clear point here. What one act proves the highest love for someone else? John 15, 12-14 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you to do. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. I wonder how much as believers we fail to meditate on this truth every day. Not only did he empty himself, self-limiting many of his godly attributes, but he also took on flesh, human flesh. Not only this, but he was the sinless one. who was fully deserving of all riches, all glory, and all honor, and all majesty. And the Father looked on His only begotten Son, this Holy One, and He took your sin, and He took my sin, and He took the sins of the whole world that He would redeem, And He placed them on His Son. Christ gave up everything for our redemption. Everything. And thanks be to God that by Christ's poverty, we have become unfathomably rich. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are unfathomably rich in Christ Jesus by what He has done? For you. Not only do you believe it, but do you live and order your life around it? Verse 10 says, And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Has there ever been a time in your walk with Christ when you knew you were supposed to do something? There was a clear biblical directive, but you didn't want to do it. But you did it anyway. Maybe with a little frustration or half-heartedness, you did it. This verse is very important here this morning. We don't do or avoid doing things in our walk with Christ based on feelings or emotions. Have you ever said, I don't feel like going to church today? Maybe some of you here said that this morning. How about I don't feel like reading my Bible today? We cannot be a people ruled by our emotions and our feelings. Jeremiah 17, 9-10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. I would encourage you when you don't feel like doing things, when you don't feel like going to church, do it anyway. Why? Because whether you feel like it or not, you know without a shadow of a doubt that it's the right thing to do. When you don't feel like taking time in the morning or the evening to read the Scriptures, when when it has felt like the Lord has been silent in your quiet time, why would it matter? I would encourage you to read even more Scripture. Proverbs 2, 1-6 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my, my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver or if you search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Mining for silver is no easy task. Searching for hidden treasure is no easy task. Inclining your heart is not an easy task either. We must make the effort. We must do the work. We must beat our lazy and rebellious will and heart into submission to God by being obedient to His Word, whether we feel like it or not. I don't know if you saw there, but after the Corinthians had started to do the work, their desires began to catch up to the work. So not only they they didn't they not only did it, they truly began to desire to do it as they did it. And this too, this text says, proved the genuineness of their faith. That even though they didn't feel like it in the beginning, they did it, and they began to desire to do it, and it proved the genuineness of their faith. I'm going to read the last five verses here. (laughs) So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need and that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Up to this point, Paul was very grateful to the Corinthians that they had started the collection. And he was even more grateful that they had begun to desire to do it. But you'd also remember that up to this point, Paul has not given any specific directives to the Corinthians about their giving. He's given them examples and he's given them encouragement. But here in verse 11, he gives them a directive. 
the only directive in chapters 8 and 9 in regards to giving. And his directive is simple. Don't give up. Don't quit. Complete the work that you are desiring to do. And complete it according to what each person has, not according to what each person does not have. In these last few verses, Paul introduces us to two instructions when it comes towards advancing the kingdom of God through giving. The first instruction is what some refer to as proportionate giving. God has never instructed all of us to give in the same way. Even the biblical tithe is never presented in in this way. It was never meant to be legalistic. The biblical tithe, just as we have seen here, is just a revealer of the person's heart, a revealer of where they think their blessings have come from. The tenth is just a jumping off point. It's a minimum. It's a beginning. It's not a legalistic number. Paul is very clear here in this text. We are supposed to give as we have ability. And I can assure you, we all have more ability than we think we do. This is why we have the example of the Macedonians in our text. Both rich and poor bring tithes and offerings to God, but the gift is only as good as the orientation of the heart of the believer. Remember that Scottish man I told you about earlier. His heart was not in his giving. Luke 21, 1-4 says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she contributed out of her poverty. And she put in all she had to live on. The rich people in that text were putting in way below their means. The poor widow gave like the Macedonian. She gave beyond her means. She gave everything. Since Cain and Abel, God has always looked at the heart to value the gift. Always. That's always been the case. Uh, The second instruction Paul gives us is what some refer to as reciprocal giving. Reciprocal giving. And this idea of reciprocal giving is, is, I think, deeply intertwined with cultivating deep and personal relationships with one another. I think this text can be applied to many different areas of our relationships between one another. To the extent that we are freely helping one another back and forth. The closer we grow in our relationships with one another and we get to know each other, the easier it will be to share one another's burdens. Again, I don't think that we can o- we have to only apply this to money this morning. I think we can apply this to our time and our resources as well. It may mean helping somebody with a project, providing a meal during a difficult time, visiting one another, devoting time to discipleship, praying for and with one another, And yes, meeting financial needs as well. There are those in our fellowship struggling spiritually. Others financially. Others with loneliness. 
Some need help with guidance with children. Others need close friendship. Some just need time. Some need help. Some just need a friendly visit. The Lord has sovereignly and providentially brought each and every person to providence. It's not just dumb luck that you're here. We all have needs, but we also all have God-given ability to meet the needs of others in this room this morning. It's important for us to think about what the Lord has gifted us with and what we can offer up freely to those around us. Those of you that are older, think of the years of spiritual discernment that you have gained through your lifetime. You have been through and seen the end of so many trials and tribulations, sorrows and joys. You know what it is like to walk through them and get to the other side. You can disciple the younger people in this room through struggles and trials so that they can get to the joy that comes in the morning. Younger people in the room, think about how you can leverage your strengths and abilities, your energy and your sweet spirits to encourage support, and bless those around you. Look for ways to serve. Remember Zacchaeus. Remember the Macedonians. And remember Christ. Those who truly experience the saving grace of Christ, give. Let us joyfully give according to what we have been so richly blessed with in Christ Jesus.